everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have got a great show for you tonight, starting with wearables. Yay! Not just any wearables. These are the best wearables ever. I'm talking about the costumes. They're not even costumes. The dresses dresses. that people wore at the Met Fashion Gala this week. And I know you guys are like, no, (laughs) Stacy, no. But bear walk in, walk in the IOT carpet. We we have to do it, guys. Did you see yeah. Claire Danes was mm-hmm. wearing an amazing dress? It was it was like every girl's princess fantasy. It was beautiful. It was white. And then when the lights were out, it glowed. Wah wah. Fiber did, optics. I was just gonna say they did it with fiber optics and thirty little battery packs sewn into the thing, which I didn't see. I mean, not that I saw tons of pictures of this, but in all the pictures that I saw, I don't see any battery packs. And well, so it, they did say that um, the dress was so difficult for her to move around in. It took her husband and I think Zach Posen, I don't know how to say his name, the designer, both to help her like maneuver in that thing. Yeah, I think they built this around her. And uh, yeah. So for the most part, I was really disappointed because all the celebrities were like, hey, the theme of the fashion gala, which is held or the Met Fashion Gala, which is held every year at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's curated, is that the word I'm looking for? Hosted by Mm -hmm. Vogue editor Anna Wintour. And Mm -hmm. again, I am not a fashionista, but I appreciate, you know, really awesome clothes because what the heck? Why not? Kevin's like, sure, I appreciate the Beatles. (laughs) Which, ironically, I'm wearing a Beatles t-shirt, but then again, what day am I not wearing one? Yeah, that is not ironic. That's the opposite of Anyway, so I thought hers was awesome because it looked like clothing. Obviously, I was not there. I did not see it move. (laughs) But the other dress that did have some kind of tech associated with it was Carolina Kirkova, who wore this dress that actually IBM Watson helped design, according to IBM's press. And it was another kind of white looking dress. And this had little flowers embroidered on the train. And mm-hmm. there were lights in it. And they responded apparently to Twitter. You know, it's funny you say that. I didn't know about Carolina's dress. I was going to say it would have been cool if Claire Danes's dress had some type of connectivity in it. So the colors changed based on maybe where she was in the room or who she was close to or so on and so forth. But now Carolina's dress had some kind of connectivity tech in it. Yes. So her dress was designed by, is it Mar- Marchesa? Marquesa? I bet it's Marquesa. I think it's, I think it's Marquesa. Yeah. I, I haven't watched Project Runway in a while, but I think that's right. So Marquesa designed this and it had 150 LED connected flowers on it. And what they did is the designers chose five sentiments they wanted the dress to express. So joy, patience, excitement, encouragement, and curiosity. Notice none of them were hate or trolling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they fed that into IBM's cognitive color tool. That hmm. uses color psychology to match emotion to hues. So Watson chose colors that also align with Marquesa's brand. Of course. <laughs> so, oh, it, Watson, you're so sneaky. They, they served up a range of color palettes that Marquesa liked. Mm-hmm. And that, which makes sense actually on a dress because you'd hate to be wearing like a yellow dress and then, you know, your yeah. LEDs were like lighting up red. That would probably not be great. Yeah. Um, and then they stuck it through Watson's tone analyzer API. And if you did a tweet tagged Met Gala or cognitive dress, that would change her colors on the dress. See, that's the part I like. I mean, other people have influence over what happens. That's pretty wicked. They say even the fabric, which was tool, was chosen through a cognitive process. Hmm. Like people thinking like, hey, tool would look good on this dress. 
<laughs> why don't we why don't we just say thinking now? It's it's all cognitive. AI. Um, those two were my favorite dresses. Um there were a couple other nice dresses, but overall for the theme, which was Manus Imakina, man and machine, there was apparently the fashion world thinks machine means like Blade Runner, you know, coated in metal, just yeah. dark and silver and yeah, that's that's the movies from the 80s, 90s, and so on. But now, you take a look at some of the more recent movies, there is no physical body. You know, think of her uh, or Ex Machina, which you couldn't even eventually tell it was a, an android. So, And if we go with fashion from her, all I remember is those ridiculous pants on the guys. Well, yeah, no, that's that wasn't the best view of the future. At least I hope not. I'll keep my Beatles shirts. Thank you. So right now... When fashion meets tech, I have to say that fashion is doing a terrible job interpreting tech. But, you know, those two dresses were fun. Yeah. I would love to see actually some people, you know, Adafruit, always the the company in Brooklyn that sells kind of connected gadgets and mm-hmm. stuff. They actually have some really cool designs. I've I've run across some cool designs on their blog before. Things like clothes that interact with like, I think there was a skirt that someone sewed that the lights on the skirt went around in the motion of the ISS, hmm. which is kind of a fun way to convey information, right? Right, right. And it didn't take 30 battery packs, although it did have a battery pack. So think about it, you guys. Next mm. year, if the Met does a similar theme, which they won't, you know, I expect better. All right. So after my foray into fashion there, <laughs> where everybody who does not care about that is like, okay, Stacy, talk about lighting again. I'm not going to talk about lighting. I have been um, promising you guys a review of this little doohickey I got called the Pebblebee Stone, which is two things. It's a Bluetooth tracker, uh, much like Tile, and it is also a one-button press to do a couple things associated with your phone and theoretically also connect through if this, then that. Programmable button. It's a programmable button. Nice. Plus a tracker. So this thing is the size of a quarter. It costs about $30 and it works as a tracker. And that's pretty easy. It has a nice little map interface on it that you you press the map. So it's not even making the map all the time. You press it and it's like, oh, here's where I last was. Uses Google Maps. But much to my chagrin, I could not get the if this then that functionality to work. So you get two options with this programmable button, which is a quick press. And a long press. Mm-hmm. So I've done a couple things. So I did a quick press being call my husband. So I don't know if I'm feeling lazy or attacked. I could just be like, boom, and I'll call my husband. Or you can have it ring an alarm on your phone, which is nice if you're looking for your phone and you have this thing tied to your keys or something. And you can also use it to take a picture, which I was playing with before the show, where if I did a long press, it would open up the camera on my phone and take a picture but it i was wondering what those noises were i kept hearing a shutter sound before we started recording yes it was it was uh-huh. me taking <laughs> taking uh-huh. glamour shots of the, the closet busted, busted. Uh, now this this is not a wearable device this is something you might clip to something or stick to something kind of yes, like it comes with like a little keychain thing I yeah mean, i guess okay. you could wear it it could be a necklace <laughs> okay sure the, sure. It comes with these little uh, plastic covers. So my plastic covers came in blue, white, and pink. So, you know. I guess. So 
It reminds me of the Amazon Dash buttons, only you have more control over, obviously, what it can do if you want to hook it up with if this and that. It also works as a tracker and so on. So, But the concept is, is essentially the same, no? Yes, it is. And I kind of liked it because they're really small and they're relatively inexpensive, so you could kind of scatter them about your home if you wanted. But here's the but. I could huh. not get it to connect with my if this then that account i verified it a whole bunch of times and i even made recipes and if thinks it's verified but the pebble be stone doesn't so none of my if this and that recipes worked yet hmm. so i'm kind of sad because i'm actually i think it'd be kind of fun to have on my keychain so i never lose my keys but then i'm also able to when i leave the house click the button and set off a close down my house routine through if this and that yeah. Or if you're if you're cold, just a one touch press and boom on your Nest thermostat, pump up the heat. Well, I have to pick only two things. Ah, uh, that's true. It is limited. It one is press, limited. Long press. Yeah. Although if I had multiples, <laughs> I could have a whole bunch of buttons. <laughs> yeah. Buttons everywhere. These are uh, my light switches. <laughs> it looks like it has some additional sensors in there because I'm seeing that you can get notifications not just based on the Bluetooth range, but also temperature and motion. Oh, I have not gotten any of those notifications yeah. yet. So like like the example they're using is uh, you put it in your car and maybe you want to know how warm it is in your car because maybe you want to remotely open your windows or something to cool it off. I don't know, but you could put it somewhere and get notifications based on temperature and motion. I had not thought about that. There you go. I like this uh, doing a press and hold to share your GPS location with someone since it's on your, you might put this on your keys to keep track of them. You could actually have the one in your key ring. You could program the button press to be like, boom, this is where I am. And you could only send it to one person mm-hmm. right now. Or you, I guess you could choose all your contacts, maybe. Oh, let's let everybody know where I am. <laughs> 500 people. So, but, you know, I think that's kind of nice. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. I agree. So, nice. okay. So that is kind of my so far impression it is. of the Pebbleby Stone. And <laughs> you, though, have been working with If This Then That too, huh? I have. Um, and that's because and I don't think this happened until after the last show. So I don't think we've discussed it. But Google OnHub just got If This Then That support a few days ago, which is good news. So basically, anytime you connect a device to your OnHub router, you could fire something off through if this and that. I will say this. I've tried it a couple times, once uh, on Sunday, so over the weekend, and then again just before the show. And I'm not sure where the issue is, but it's not working 100% for me. And I will keep digging to see what the issue is because it could be at any number of things. It could be the, the on-hub uh, caching, what devices are still connected versus what's or what are, isn't. It could be I've, I've set it up to use the wrong device. Who knows? But I thought, hey, this would be great when I come home. It's nighttime. Kind of use this as a proximity to I get home. I'm still in the driveway driving into the garage, but my phone will connect to the on-hub. So why not? Use if this then that that says, hey, if my phone connects to the on-hub, then run a wink shortcut that turns on a light. In theory, that sounds good. I've tried it about four or five times, and it's really only worked one time. And it was very delayed, like at least 30 seconds delayed. So yes. I'm not, yeah, that's it came not, as a surprise. Yeah. So I keep looking behind me because we tried it just before the show, and I keep expecting the light to turn on 30 minutes later. So the good news is there's if this then that support, and it could be something maybe with you know, Wink could be, like I said, with the OnHub table, could be me. I don't know, but it's not quite working well enough for me yet. So I'm going to continue to play with it. 
All right. I should also bring up, because this happened after we recorded our last show, but it's totally worth mentioning. This is a big project, but Kevin, did you see the guy who hacked his Tesla with the Amazon Echo? I did not. It, it, was he starting it with the Echo? I can't, I, no, this is even better. He like oh. he like pulled a full Knight Rider here. He actually connected his Tesla to the Echo, and basically he had it his Tesla leave the garage. Un- I was going to say unpark itself, um, <laughs> <laughs> roll out of the garage and park ready for him. So this was actually a really neat video. And I had a bunch of people send it to me like, hey, so what this guy did is he used Amazon's Echo, the she who shall not be named skills kit to trigger mm-hmm. on the keyword. And his kid keyword was ask kit and kit was the name of the car in Knight Rider mm-hmm. for, for all of those of you who are <laughs> not old. <laughs> so and then he sent the resulting event to AWS Lambda and he had built a Lambda function to connect to his Tesla Golang library that he published and mm-hmm. the Golang code on Lambda then called an unofficial Tesla API and triggered the car to take action. Hmm. So what it in the car did, it opened the car via his home link link, which is the Tesla's now have the home link link where you can automatically open your garage. Mm-hmm. And he dry, drove it out using the summon summon command that is on the, that is able to work on the newer Teslas. Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And there's a video. I will totally link to it for anyone it who has that. It's a very cool hack. Um, but really not, complicated. Not, yeah, not for the faint of heart, obviously. I mean, you're going to want to be a developer to really take advantage of this, but also kind of scary. I think it shows a lot of promise. Although mm-hmm. if you if you imagine walking by this guy's house and you're like, Psst, get Kit. Yeah, <laughs> the car will come pick you up. You're like, nice. I like that he remembered to open the garage door before having it, you know, drive out. Yeah, that's, it's all in the flow. You know, he probably flow charted the whole thing out. Garage door open? Yes, no. Which which brings up a good point. <laughs> when you are programming things for the connected home, mm. as you start to get more complicated, and there's there are things out there like Stringify, for example, is in an app that lets you get fairly complicated. And even things like Wink will let you build these robots that have several actions taking place it's actually worthwhile to think before you actually program and mm-hmm. plan this stuff out because I have not historically done that. And I found myself encountering things that in retrospect, I probably should have thought about. Yeah. So, all right, back to things, hopefully that work. Things How about that, things that don't work well? I was going to say, never mind. <laughs> We're still on things that don't work. Which one would yeah. you like to talk about? Oh, let's go with smart things. Oh, it's another show, another week, and we're still talking about smart things. But in fairness, I mean, we're not making it up. It's not like we're sitting here judging. <laughs> that's that's judging our smart fairness. <laughs> we're not making this stuff up. I mean, this is news that is being reported, and and we're sharing it and sharing our opinions on it. So I, I don't want people to think, well, these guys just bash smart things all the time. It's not our fault if these things keep happening. And this most latest one is some some proof of concept exploits that is letting hackers basically hack into your house through smart things. Yes. And basically the gist of it is that because smart things has a developer program and has to approve apps, you could sneak an app in that could then release malicious code mm-hmm. throughout the system. Now, smart things is, I, I reached out to them. They're like, look, this hasn't resulted in any problems for our users you know, so we're aware yeah. of it. We're working on this or we worked on this, actually. 
So, and this actually ties into something else that SmartThings announced last week, which was that it has hired a director of engineering Mm -hmm. from Amazon. So in part of what they were talking about in this, with this hiring, the engineer's name is Robert Parker. And in an interview that Parker did with The Verge, he talked about actually establishing guardrails, it was his term for it, in smart things to like improve the user experience. But as part of that, I think what we'll see is also ways that you wouldn't have quite as much openness around being able to deposit malicious code in. Right. And the good news here is that the basis of this exploit really has to do with the privileges that the smart apps or smart thing apps are given. This is something Samsung can fix. I mean, uh, I'm just taking a look at the Ars Technica story that 55% of the 499 smart apps available during the research qualified as being overprivileged. So yeah, that's violating a core security tenant known as the least privileged principle. Developers may not even be aware that their smart things apps have too much privilege. You know, it's not like the developers are creating this stuff to do malicious things. The problem is, I guess in the SDK or, or whatever, the apps just have too much power, so to speak. It's like when you don't give your teens a curfew and you just let them run amok. They may not be bad actors, but, you know. Yeah. Going They're overprivileged. At, yes. Going out at 3 a.m., nothing good's going to happen to you. Nope. You give your you give your app too many privileges. They're not yeah. going to be up to any good. That's basically what this is about. I have reached out to Smart Things. I'm actually hoping to get Alex Hawkinson on the show to talk about this because they've yeah. had so many issues lately. I know that they're really trying hard. And what they're trying to do mm-hmm. in terms of being super open and also user-friendly is really tough. It's a challenge. I agree. So we hopefully will hear back and no more yep. in a couple weeks. So Smart Things, Met Gala, on Hub. We should probably talk really fast because we've got some corporate news in the acquisition, the M&A department. Ooh. Up. So Microsoft acquired an Italian company called Solaire. I'm assuming that's how you call it. It's S-O-L-A-I-R. Um, mm-hmm. And this company is, it's about five years old. And when I looked at what they did, which is provide a couple kind of device management device lifecycle management kind of stuff in the cloud, it really struck me that Microsoft with its Azure IoT platform is going to go up real heavily against PTC, which I don't know if you guys remember, but they bought ThingWorks and Arrayant. So the idea is that a big manufacturer will come to them and say, hey, I want to make a connected washing machine. Can you just handle all the connectivity side of it and then just send us the data when you're done? That's kind of the options mm-hmm. there. This company, I mean, they're not, I did not hear of them prior to, but I, I do see that they have worked with the Italian espresso machine manufacturer Rancillo Group, if that's correct, and also a food processing machine company, Minerva Omega Group. So, And I made a mistake. I said PTC oh. acquired Arrayant, which is wrong. PTC <laughs> acquired Exata. Oh, Stacey, you're, you're overprivileged again. I'm overprivileged. <laughs> As I was saying it, I was like, wait a second, that's not right. All right. PTC acquired Exata. That was back at the end of 2014. In Exata, it provides a cloud platform for connected devices. Anyway, there we go. so Azure is actually going up against these guys pretty closely, which is kind of cool. Different model, really focusing on both true and kind of in- not industrial enterprise needs. We'll call it enterprise needs, which mm-hmm. yay. So 
There's that. And then the other deal was Oracle buying Opower, which Opower used to provide energy management software for utilities. And they kind of have been, I don't want to say pivoting because they haven't done a full pivot, but they've kind of switched their ethos and way of being to really doing, they started out with kind of demand response and now they're trying to provide like more data services. Mm -hmm. And Oracle bought them this week for 532 million. So yay, great deal. And you can see this working for the internet of things and kind of the vertical focus that a lot of the big companies think they need to get. So we should look for them to acquire specific expertise in like manufacturing the internet or uh, utilities, um, maybe medical devices and healthcare. So that was kind of my quick take from there. Mm -hmm. Kevin's like, I didn't have a quick take on that. Nope. Not at all. Now I will say that Oracle's offer was half of Opower's IPO price in 2014. So this was not like possibly the best outcome, but I think it was still at a premium, 30% premium to the stock at the time before the the deal. Yeah. For what that's worth. I, I'm just, you know, further yeah. history. So that is that. So the final news we should talk about is Google and the return of Rick. Ost- is it Rick Osterloh? Osterloh. Yes. Osterloh. Okay. What what a great guy. And and just my standard disclosure being that I now work for Google. I don't know anything about this other than what's been reported. So just, just to be clear. But I do know Rick Osterloh. He is a great guy. Uh, he ran uh, Motorola for quite a while, the devices over there. And when Motorola went to from Google to Lenovo, he went along for the ride. And according to Recode, and it says it was, it's been confirmed by a Google spokesperson. I don't know who that was or whatever, but uh, he is coming back and will be in charge of like everything consumer hardware-y for, for Google. Yeah. So some of the new divisions, according to Recode, are the Nexus, lines of phones, tablets, Chromecast, consumer hardware, which includes Chromebook laptops and the new Pixel C devices, OnHub, Kevin's router, mm-hmm. uh, ATAP. Uh, which is the advanced technology something projects. Yes, uh, that's what they, they did. The uh, I forget what it stands for, too, but they did the modular phones. RF phones. They do a yeah. lot. They did some cool stuff. They do some really cool stuff. Absolutely. And they actually lost the head of that group to Facebook just a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. Yep, Regina Dugan. Yep. It was so, uh, the, the Advanced Technology and Project Group. That's what it was. Oh, yep. the A is just for Anne. It's just Anne. <laughs> should be a small A, but it's the capital A and ATAP. But that's there, fine. That, the, we'll, yeah. we'll that, that, that division was one of the very few that Google did not sell to Lenovo when Motorola was uh, went to Lenovo. And there's Glass, which we must all remember from what was it, 2014? Glass. That's, it might have been 13, but but 14. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Somewhere in there. So yeah, so Tony Fidel was given charge, uh, that's the CEO of Nest, which is one of the Google divisions, was given charge of Glass, but apparently now it is, he is staying on as an advisor to the team, but this is now going to be under Rick's, Rick Osterloh's mm-hmm. division. So we can take a lot of things from this, um, just so Kevin doesn't feel uncomfortable, I'll just start ta- taking things from this, <laughs> which is... <laughs> This is one, a slap in the face for Tony Fidel and Nest because, you know, a whole set, they were the consumer hardware division for Google in a lot of ways. And it sounds like Google is limiting his fiefdom tremendously to 
possibly what they have. I had seen elsewhere that like some of the re- the reported projects such as Google's, you know, Echo-like device and the other stuff it's developing for the smart home might come under this as well. So that's good because Ostrolo is a good guy who knows a lot about developing hardware. It's bad for Nest and kind of makes me wonder how long that's going to be. Like what happens with that kind of down the road? Yeah, well, I, I will say this. I mean, I guess you could say that Tony Fidel was the like the face of consumer hardware, but really... He had nothing to do with the Nexus program, Chromecast, uh, Chromebooks, tablets, and all that. So I wouldn't want to overstate what he had. He had the Nest Group and like, Glass, apparently. So Okay. Well, there we go. Kevin doesn't want to overstate. I do. Ruh-roh. Dun-dun-dun. Next week, I'll be alone. Yeah. No. Um, all right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for this week's podcast. I will say that our guest coming up is Kai Kweitzer, who is the head of OpenHab, which we've talked about in previous shows. It's an open source home automation kind of software code. And we'll talk about what you can do with it, why it exists, and a little bit about like what happens when companies don't want to share their API, how, how you can reverse engineer those things. So Stay tuned. It's going to be fun. Hi, this is Stacy breaking into the IoT podcast to tell you two things. The first is that I've launched a weekly newsletter devoted to the Internet of Things that you can sign up for at StacyOnIoT.com. That's S-T-A-C-E-Y on IoT.com. The second is that we're now accepting ads on the Internet of Things podcast. We have packages for big companies and startups. So if you are interested, please email Andrew at IoTPodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Kai Kweitzer, who is the founder of OpenHab. Hi, Kai. How are you doing today? Hi, Stacey. I'm fine. Thanks. How about you? I am super well. So it is late at night where you are, or later at night. So I appreciate you doing this show. Let's first get into what is OpenHab, because while a lot of the project people might know about it, I doubt like the regular users do. Well, OpenHab is an open source software for the smart home. It's mainly targeting um, DIY users, so tech-savvy people who want to integrate a lot of things at home. All right. So I will tell you guys that OpenHab is even a little nerdier than, than I am comfortable with, because... What it basically is, is you can put this on a Raspberry Pi, or we were talking about it a couple shows ago on the Pine 64. And it's cool because, and the reason Kai's on the show is because this is a completely different model for building out the connected home, which is you do most of the work in the OpenHab guys, their whole effort is around truly creating an open kind of home automation platform. So Kai kind of Walk me through how we got to this place and why you thought the world needed OpenHab. Well, it all started about six years ago. And uh, the the starting point was really that I built a house for my own or for my family. And I, I was really interested in automating stuff uh, already since childhood. And so for me, it was clear I have to build a house from scratch because I can put cables anywhere I like. And so I really put in, uh, well, 
switchable lights, uh, shutters, uh, energy systems, and so on, had a lot of hardware built in there, but uh, was somehow lacking a good software. And um, the problem for me was that I wanted to have some software where I can be sure it's future-proof, that I can extend it even in a few decades from now. And uh, so for me, it was really clear that it must not depend on a single vendor and their system and their business strategy, but uh, that I'm really free and open to extend it uh, for whatever comes up in future. Okay. And so you guys have built this um, where you to make this work with any device out there. You guys just need access to to an SDK or an API. How does that work? Yeah, so it's really OpenHub is running on a home gateway, as you said, on a Raspberry Pi or some more capable computer. And the integration uh, to the end devices is done uh, in whatever way the end devices provide access. So there are, for example, many of the wireless protocols like Z-Wave, ZigBee, and Ocean and others uh, where you have a USB dongle and uh, you then integrate that uh, through this uh, protocol. Other devices have an well, IP stack. You can reach them through normal Ethernet or Wi-Fi connection. And uh, they might have um, yeah, an API, very often a proprietary API, to access that. And uh, for some others, you might also have to go through reverse engineering, a serial protocol or whatever, uh, in order to be able to communicate with these devices. Okay, so you lost like half the people right now, and it's a pretty tech-savvy audience, but still I think they're like, reverse engineering, no way! The others are like, yes, I could totally do this. But <laughs> commercially, is this reasonable? I mean, or is what, I mean, is it going to break down that the smart home is really going to be only open and future-proof for people who are able to, you know, reverse engineer the data flow from their device? Well, I think it's really the best option for the tech-savvy people, as I said. So um, it is uh, technical and you're, you have to know a little bit what, what you're doing there. So it's nothing that you, that you buy off the shelf and it uh, simply directly works. The good thing there is that uh, this openness and freedom and independence uh, really gives you the chance to, uh, to be open in all the directions. So as soon as you do a commercial product out of that you're you're getting into some business direction then where you might want to say well okay maybe i only want to partner with that company but not with the competitor and you're automatically getting not as open as uh, you would be if you're really completely free of any commercial interest and uh, i think that's really one of the the major uh, strong points of uh, open hub and uh, something that i really want uh, to keep like that for the future well what about usability because i think i feel like the trade off is not just about like business practices which it can be i mean there's nothing better than building your own and making your own thing work for you to avoid somebody collecting your data or or worse but what about figuring out how to do something well and then keeping it as open as possible? Like, have you found companies that are doing this in a in a good user-friendly format? Or, Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that uh, OpenHub is not user-friendly. Um, so we're, we're working uh, into that direction as well. So there are a lot of new functionalities currently being built in there. 
that, for example, do auto discovery. So it's automatically scanning your network. It's checking what uh, USB sticks uh, you might have in there and uh, really discover the devices that you have in place and make it very easy through a user interface to set up uh, your stuff altogether. So I think we're, we're heavily increasing the target audience there. But at the same time, um, this is also the, the tricky part because as soon as you're making it more user-friendly, you also have uh, more people who can't help themselves if they come across problems. And so the more support you actually have to do on our standard um, users, which are not developers and uh, can look into things. And somehow you, you have to balance uh, your time on such an open source project. How much support do you want to do for community members that are pure users? And how much time do you actually invest in uh, further evolving the project and uh, bring it forward? And that's definitely something where a non-commercial project has its uh, limits because yeah, the, the time is very scarce and um, yeah, the people working on it are usually doing it for their own use cases. So they're happy as soon as it works for them. Is there any possibility that we could see this project go commercial and have actual robust support or maybe more robust support? As I said, for me, one of the strong points is that it's not commercial, the project uh, itself. What I'm currently doing is to create an organization, actually a, a non-for-profit organization around it, where it's easier to organize uh, people around that and maybe also then companies who actually do open hub installations for a living. So there are a couple of uh, commercial companies out there that... Uh, like OpenHub so much that they recommended it uh, to their friends and they, they more or less started uh, getting into business of uh, installing that and supporting it as their day job. And I think that is uh, definitely a direction where we could build a kind of marketplace and a network for professional services around that project. Of course, then that puts us right back into like the X10 or proprietary kind of system days for the end user, because you're still going to be at this place where like, oh, crikey, I just added, you know, four light bulbs and daylight savings time passed. I got to get my program, my Cydia programmer out here and have them <laughs> rework my, my infrastructure. I think the big difference is that it is mainly about uh, consultancy and uh, to, to teach people what is possible, what can they do and uh, to decide, okay, what might be the best uh, devices to buy, how to set them up. And if you consider smart home technologies, not only the consumer electronic parts, but really also the, the classical home automation where you have to deal with heating systems and um, yeah, shutters uh, that are automated, there's actually no way around having your electrician involved in that. But usually only for the initial setup, all the programming, or let's not call it programming because that's too technical, but um, really the automation of your home and uh, adaption customization, that can be done by the end user itself. Got it. With this project, what are people doing with it that's neat? Because we get a lot of people who've asked us to talk more about how-tos and kind of cool stuff that people have done. So I'd love to hear what some of the people using OpenHAV have used it to connect. 
I see many people doing a lot about energy efficiency. So they have, for example, solar panels, they have the heating systems, and they, they really optimize uh, this together. We have users um, doing the, that might be interesting for you, the Tesla integration. So they have actually electric vehicle charging stations directly uh, talking to OpenHub and uh, controlling the Tesla then also for the charging of the battery and uh, all other things. So you can even honk the horn, if you like, uh, through OpenHub. I can honk the horn through the app. So in that situation... <laughs> That's I, not automated. That's the main point. You're right. <laughs> you're right. I can't. I don't have the horn honking. Like It would be kind of fun to have the horn honk. I think, think about an extended security system that reaches exactly. out to your garage as well. So, someone someone breaks into my house, the garage, the the Tesla honks. So, <laughs> in that situation, so let's break it down for people. I would need to to hook my Tesla up to my home security system using OpenHab. I would need something running OpenHab. I would also need to pull some software that lets it talk to my Tesla. Do I need to have OpenHab the software running on my Tesla somewhere? No, so OpenHab itself comes with so-called bindings, and the bindings are then doing the integration to the different systems uh, and uh, stuff. So all you would need is to install the Tesla binding on the OpenHub, so on the Pine64, for example, and uh, this will, in the case of the Tesla, go to the Tesla cloud service and connect through there. So that's no local integration, that's a cloud service integration. Got it. And how would it work on a local integration? So I'm trying to think of any of the local stuff I have, but I'm totally failing since most things are actually not. They're mostly in the cloud. But how would that look if I had an IP camera that was served for my house, for example? The local integration is the most important feature of OpenHub in that respect, because um, only if you're having local integration, uh, you can be really sure that you're also independent of things. We've just seen uh, the case with the Revolve Hub and uh, that it's all of a sudden bricked just because the cloud service disappears. And uh, this is exactly the scenario that uh, we want to avoid with OpenHub. So wherever possible, it should be a local integration. You have that for most devices actually available. So all the stuff is installed locally. You hook it up to your Wi-Fi, stuff like Philips Hue, like uh, Sonos speakers, uh, like the LifeX bulbs, like Logitech Harmony Hub, and uh, all these things are local and they have some kind of API. And that's also much nicer because they are directly discoverable through UPnP, through uh, Bonjour protocol. And yeah, this really makes it possible to to have a very reliable setup altogether what about security because i'm trying i'm thinking like as a user as a less than technically savvy user if i build myself the open hab hub i'm going to be like yeah i'm so amazing and i'm going to hook it up to things and i'm going to be like that was awesome and then i'm going to leave it alone for the rest of the like until it breaks right so how do you handle things like changing security protocols um, hacks that you know vulnerabilities that may get reported afterwards and need updates how do you communicate that to users because that's it doesn't feel like that would be part of your core function as kind of a bunch of hobbyists yeah well if there are vulnerabilities or uh, it's 
definitely fixed in the in the code, but we don't have an automatic uh, update management to inform people who have uh, set up an instance that they uh, need to update. So that's definitely currently uh, with the users to make sure that they do regular upgrades. So it is possible to just say you have an older installation and you you get uh, the latest version without losing all your data and your setup. So that's uh, definitely perfectly possible. Got it. So where are we in the evolution of the smart home? Where have we come? Where are we going, in your, your opinion? Smart home technology is really pretty old. So I, I know it since at least two decades. Uh, I think we're still in a very early phase uh, on the market. So I see the, the, the marketing people saying since about five years at least that now is the big breakthrough. But um, if I look at how yeah, how easily breakable things uh, still are and how difficult it is for really beginners to, to get started with stuff, I think it will still take a while. And um, I'm not saying that uh, the software part is actually a problem. We're, we're still on the on the starting point of having really reliable protocols, reliable hardware, and uh, things really break too easily and communication is not, not stable enough and stuff like that. So that really has to become better over the next years. From a software perspective, I also think that there's a lot of hype around uh, artificial intelligence and uh, having smart homes being your assistant at home that really knows what you want the, the classical example you come home and your favorite music is playing i really don't believe in that uh, becoming true uh, in any time soon because it's really you need to have so much contextual information in order to do really wise decisions as an automated system that all the possible sensors that we have in place now are, are really not not enough uh, to have that, to really get the mood of somebody, to get uh, the whole circumstances in what something is happening, to draw the right conclusions from that. And I'm also not completely sure if we really want to go the way to add more and more sensors and uh, stuff to, to make that context available to the machines, because that's then, again, also a privacy issue uh, for sure, and people might not feel comfortable so you might know the analogy about the uncanny valley. And I think this very much applies to artificial intelligence in the smart home as well. The uncanny valley for, for the listeners who are not familiar with that, it really means that um, a robot or an automatic system feels a bit weird and uh, not really, people are not comfortable with that as long as it's not perfect. I always think of the actors in the Polar Express. They were just so freaky, dead-eyed looking ugh, <laughs> nightmares. The or it was a 3D version of the Polar Express from a couple of years back. That is the Uncanny Valley applied to your favorite Christmas book. So I like this. So then what reasonably should we expect? I mean, most people, when they automate their homes, if they're buying into this, they're like, hot dickety. I want all this to happen, right? That's what they're kind of working towards, both as an industry and even consumers is what kind of we're being sold. So what do you think is a more realistic vision to sell consumers? I think as long as uh, the artificial intelligence, as just said, we're, we're not on the 
perfect level, you really have to go into programming in some way. And the only thing uh, that I see there is that you you make it easy to have complex logic set up for the users. So one way where we're trying to drive that in OpenHub is to say, well, you have automation rules, which is a piece of logic that is executed, but the normal user itself doesn't have to implement it, but uh, it can be a developer who prepares all that and the user just um, configures it and customizes it uh, for his own purposes. So you can think of that a little bit like uh, the if if this then that approach where you have these recipes uh, which say, hey, that's your use case. You want to use it. You're creating this recipe, using it and configuring it to your own uh, setup. And I think that's really what, what is the most realistic way forward for the moment. Okay. And that's something you guys are implementing. So in, does that look like, hey, I see you have these devices. Here are some things you can do or it's automatically populated? Well, that's more or less uh, still a dream, but definitely the direction we're heading there. So we've just implemented a new rule engine that is capable of uh, having such templates, as we call that, uh, for the rules, and to have a user interface where it can easily instantiate the stuff. All right. Well, Kai, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I cannot wait to try this out. And if I if I actually do this, I'm going to be like, hot diggity, I'm a real technical person now. Woo! Um, <laughs> which I feel will be very empowering for me, and Kevin will laugh at me. I wish you much fun with Open Up, and thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week. 